Section 31 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies, An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases, by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombow. Homicide, Part 8. The Goss Utterzuk Tragedy, Part 7. With unmistakable evidences of delight, the conspirators saw that they had almost attained success. But the motion for a new trial, and especially the postponement of the hearing upon that motion until the November term of court, was somewhat of a drawback to their happiness. They knew that the fugitive Goss, addicted as he was to intemperate habits, was liable to betray his hiding place. Before Utterzuk left the courtroom, he spoke to a representative of one of the companies upon the result of the trial, and in reply to a remark of his, was told that heretofore but little effort had been made to ascertain the whereabouts of the missing Goss. Doubtless he drew the inference that a determined search, instituted by the insurance companies, would expose the whole fraud and convict himself and his accomplices of perjury. Well might they have become alarmed with such a contingency staring them in their faces. Their efforts to thwart this, and at the same time secure the plunder awarded them by a prejudiced and hostile jury, resulted in the tragic events which followed. The verdict against the insurance companies was rendered on the 6th day of June, 1873. On the 30th day of the same month, at about 9 o'clock in the evening, William E. Utterzuk arrived at the hotel of the little village of Jennerville in Chester County, Pennsylvania. Utterzuk was well known in that place. He had spent his boyhood there, and his parents still resided in the neighborhood. At the time of his arrival at this hotel, he was accompanied by a man whom Utterzuk spoke of as his friend, but did not mention any name. He asked for supper. Owing to the lateness of the hour, only a cold lunch could be furnished them, of which they partook, and afterwards they decided to remain all night. They were shown to a room, where they were quartered for the night, both occupying one bed. The stranger is described as a stout, full-chested, rather heavy-set man, with dark hair, dark mustache, and side whiskers. He appeared to be about forty years of age. The next morning, Utterzuk spoke of his friend as being an invalid and unable to come to the breakfast table. A breakfast was accordingly prepared, which Utterzuk took to his friend in his room. The stranger kept himself concealed from general observation during the day. Utterzuk was absent from the hotel during the forenoon, having gone away for the purpose, as he stated, of visiting his mother and a married sister who resided nearby. In the evening he came back with a horse and top buggy, which he had hired from a neighboring livery stable, settled his hotel bill for himself and his friend, and then taking his companion into the buggy, drove away. Near midnight he returned the horse and buggy to the livery stable. He was then alone. An examination of the buggy next morning showed that the dashboard and bow irons were broken. An oilcloth which had been fastened to the floor of the buggy was missing, 
as also were two blankets which had been furnished with the buggy. The bottom of the wagon was stained with something which had the appearance of blood. A large gold seal ring, set with a bloodstone, and a bone shirt stud, were found between the cushions of the buggy. A week afterwards, on Friday the 11th of July, a farmer, who resided in the neighborhood, was passing along the roadway through what is known as Bear's Woods, when his attention was attracted by a number of buzzards in the road, on the fence, and in the woods. He thought it an unusual occurrence, but kept on his way. Returning over the same road soon afterwards, and seeing the buzzards still there, he determined to ascertain the cause of it. An examination of the spot led to the discovery of the body of a man, scarcely covered with earth, leaves, and a few branches of trees. Information of this discovery brought others to the spot, and the mutilated remains were found to resemble the stranger who, a few days before, had driven away in the buggy with Utterzook. The deputy coroner, with the assistance of his neighbors, made a careful inquiry into the mysterious circumstances. A jury of inquest was impaneled without delay, and upon the evidence before it they found, quote, that the same man, name unknown, came to his death between the hours of 7 o'clock p.m., July 1, 1873, and 8 o'clock a.m., July 2, 1873, from wounds inflicted by a dirk knife or other sharp instrument, in the hands of William E. Utterzook of Baltimore, Maryland. End quote. The facts of Utterzook having been principal witness and manager of the occurrences connected with the fire on the York Road, coupled with the other significant fact that the remains of the missing stranger bore a striking resemblance to the description of Goss, were sufficient to arrest the attention of the insurance companies interested. An immediate visit to the scene of the murder followed, and a careful investigation of the facts was at once commenced. To the adjuster of the Travelers Insurance Company was assigned the general supervision of the matter, in the interest of the companies, and by the 18th of July these investigations had been followed up with such vigor as to enable him to send the following telegram, quote, Under the direction of the district attorney, we have exhumed and thoroughly examined the body of the man recently found murdered near Jennerville. All the measurements of the body, muscular development, figure, and general appearance, accurately correspond with the well-known description of Winfield Scott Goss. The teeth are remarkably good, regular, even, and well-preserved. The remains were fully identified by Baltimore citizens who knew Goss intimately during his lifetime. A seal ring, found in the wagon used by Utterzook on the night of the murder, was today identified by Louis Engel of Baltimore, who is a friend of the Goss family, and who was a witness for Mrs. Goss in the recent insurance suit. He unqualifiedly declares it to be the ring worn by Goss, says he has seen and examined it many times, has frequently taken it from Goss and placed it upon his own finger." He described the ring perfectly before it was shown to him. The evidence is now complete, except an analysis of the bloodstains on the wagon and similar examination of the charred remains of the clothing burned by Utterzook. The materials for this purpose, under seal, 
are placed in the hands of Professor E. Lloyd Howard of Baltimore for examination and report to the state authorities. End quote. Utterzook was arrested on the 15th of July, at the instance of the Sheriff of Chester County, Pennsylvania, and being taken to Westchester, was securely lodged in jail. His arrest upon so grave a charge was well calculated to create the utmost consternation among his numerous friends and acquaintances, and especially among those of the Goss relationship. The daily papers were filled with rumors of alleged discoveries which seemingly strengthened the evidence against him. Startling disclosures followed in rapid succession, until all doubt was early removed from the minds of those who were best conversant with the facts. Utterzook's friends were equal to the emergency. His lieutenant, who in court had unblushingly denied getting the horse and buggy, was unceasingly active in his behalf. They had no personal interviews. Alexander Campbell Goss did not risk a visit to Utterzook while a prisoner in jail, but he plotted to extricate his confederate with characteristic cunning. The same able counsel who had conducted the insurance suit for the widow were soon actively at work for the brother-in-law. Strong local counsel was employed at Westchester, and the Honorable Wayne McVeigh of Harrisburg was also retained to defend the criminal. It would be interesting to review the steps which gradually revealed the great mass of evidence which so completely overwhelmed Utterzook upon his trial. This would occupy too much space, however, and as nearly all the facts material to the unfolding of this story appear in the evidence of witnesses produced in court, we may avoid repetition by entering at once upon the record of the trial of William E. Utterzook. On the 21st of October, following the finding of the murdered man's remains, the case came to trial at West Chester, Pennsylvania, Chief Judge William Butler and Associates Holly and Passmore on the bench. For the prosecution appeared Honorable A. Wanger of Westchester, Commonwealth's attorney, and William M. Hayes, Esquire of Westchester, and for the prisoner, Wayne McVeigh of Harrisburg, Milton Whitney of Baltimore, and Joseph Perdue, Esquire of Westchester. The clerk read the first account of the indictment to the jury. The district attorney, Mr. Wanger, then made his opening statement, wherein a brief resume of the case was laid before the jury. We make the following extracts therefrom. On Friday, the 11th day of July last, the naked trunk of a male human body was found in Bears Woods between Penningtonville and Cochranesville, a lonely and desolate spot buried in a shallow grave. The limbs, brutally severed from the body, were found buried some twenty-two yards distant. The man had side whiskers, was of a dark complexion, with dark eyes, hair dark and wavy, slightly mixed with gray. A shirt was found in the same grave in which the body was interred. From the feet were taken a pair of shoes. Several cuts, apparently stabs, upon the right breast, a cut across the throat, and two other slight cuts, revealed the crime of a horrible murder. Winfield S. Goss, in 1872, was a resident of Baltimore. On Friday, the second day of February in that year, he disappeared. 
it was alleged that he was dead. We have been enabled to trace his wanderings, in some measure, until we come to this foul murder in your midst. In the month of June following his disappearance from Baltimore, he arrived at the Central Hotel in Philadelphia, where he registered under the name of A.C. Wilson. The handwriting upon the register will be submitted to you in proof of this fact. A few days afterwards he appeared at Cooperstown, in Delaware County, in this state, where he gave the same name. He boarded there for some months, and also nearby at Athensville, and frequented Bryn Mawr, not far distant. A description of his person and clothing, his statements and handwriting, will be submitted to you in proof of these facts. A finger ring which he wore, that is positively recognized, will be shown you. This ring he pawned at one time for a loan of a few dollars. He left Athensville for Newark, New Jersey, where he boarded until Wednesday, June 25, 1873. On that day he left for Philadelphia, procuring his passage ticket through the agency of Mr. Williams, a fellow boarder. In Philadelphia he registered at the William Penn Hotel, in proof of which fact we shall submit to you his handwriting upon the hotel register. Winfield S. Goss had effected an insurance upon his life to the amount of $25,000, and there were certain actions in the conduct of the prisoner which will be submitted in proof of an interest or reason for concealing the whereabouts of Goss, and even for his murder. A day or two after W.S. Goss arrived at the William Penn Hotel, as we shall prove to you, the prisoner came to Philadelphia, inquired for Goss, alias Wilson, and the two went away together. On Monday morning, the 30th of June, the prisoner and a stranger arrived at West Grove Station on the Baltimore Central Railroad in this county. They left their baggage and passed on foot for Jennerville, where they arrived at nine o'clock in the evening. They there remained all night, and in the morning the prisoner hired a horse and rode to his brother-in-law's residence, situated ten miles north. He met his sister at the house, and with her went to a neighbor's field, where her husband was at work. There he revealed to his brother-in-law that he had a friend at Jennerville who had money, and he endeavored to persuade Rhodes, his brother-in-law, to assist in putting the friend out of the way, stating that he had had this person in Newark, Philadelphia, and elsewhere, and that it would be worth a cool thousand dollars to each of them. We shall show you that he had previously written to Rhodes, saying that he had a job for him. The prisoner then left his horse and went to Penningtonville on foot, where he hired a horse and top buggy. Returning, he stopped at Rhodes's place for the horse which he had left, and borrowed a strap with which to lead him. He arrived back again at Jennerville in the evening, returned the horse he had hired there that morning, and between six and seven o'clock in the evening, he and the stranger, his friend as he called him, left in the buggy. They were seen at a number of places on the road, and will be traced to near the spot where the remains were found. At 11.40 o'clock that night he returned the buggy, broken and bloody. On the evening of this day, as we shall show you, there were heard cries upon the road, or within the woods where the crime was committed. 
This, as you will remember, was on the first day of July last. We shall show you that on the morning of the second a smoke was seen arising from the woods. Farther in the woods some of the clothing of the murdered man was burned. Buttons found there were peculiar, and were like those worn by A.C. Wilson, alias W.S. Goss, when he left Newark. The prisoner was seen to pass the hotel in Cochranesville on the morning of the second, and at this hotel he received a cup of coffee and a light breakfast. Thence he went on foot to Jennerville, arriving there at nine or ten o'clock, with his clothes disheveled. On the way he made statements about the man he had taken away with him, which statements we will show were false. On the evening of the same day he called at the railway passenger station at West Grove, where he had previously left his baggage, as we have stated, and obtaining it he took it to his mother's house, where he left it. The next morning he left for Baltimore. The person who had let to the prisoner the horse and top buggy sent him a bill for the breaking of the wagon and loss of blankets, amounting to $12.75, which bill he paid. This bill was found upon the prisoner's person at the time of his arrest. Gainer P. Moore, Sworn and Examined On Friday the 11th day of July last, I was passing along the Newport Turnpike. Coming along in sight of Bears Woods, I noticed quite a number of buzzards in the road and on the fence each side of the road. As I came up near where they were, I noticed a good many in the bushes in the woods. I went on upon my business, and returning, when I came in sight of the woods, the buzzards were still there. I went into the woods to see what attracted such a great number, and discovered something that was mysteriously hidden. It was partly covered over with earth, some dead leaves, and there were several limbs of trees laid lengthwise over it. I looked around that portion of the object which was exposed, to see if I could find any hair whereby I might determine what kind of an animal it was. I found nothing but a little tuft of dark hair, mixed with a few gray hairs. I did not make any further discovery, for I had nothing to work with. I then went to Mr. Herford's, where I had an errand, and from Mr. Herford's went across the lot to the house of Mr. Rhodes. Mr. Rhodes was not at home. I described to his wife what I had discovered in the woods, and she said she would tell her husband when he came home and have him come up and see me at my home. Rhodes came about three or four hours afterwards. I took my shovel, and we went into the woods to the place where I had seen the object or body buried. Rhodes sunk the shovel into the soil on the left side of the body and dug up a shirt. He struck the shovel in again and raised up the head and face of a man. Just then I heard a wagon passing along the road. I went out to the road and saw a gentleman driving by. He was a stranger to me. I told him what we had found and asked him to come into the woods and be a witness. He did not want to be detained, but as he was going towards Penningtonville, he took us into his wagon that we might notify the coroner. The coroner and some eight or ten gentlemen went back with me to the woods to where the body lay. A jury was at once impaneled. The body lay in the same position as when we had left it. Some person had reached there ahead of us and had uncovered the body. 
I observed a good-sized whisker on the side of the face, also a very good crop of hair. His beard on chin and lower part of face showed that it had not been shaved for several days. His hair was quite dark, with a sprinkling of gray. Whiskers about the same color. The jury being impaneled, the body was placed in their care. It was the trunk only, the arms and legs having been taken off. It was naked. The limbs were found about fifteen paces distant from where the body lay. They were buried only a few inches below the surface. On the feet were a pair of white cotton hose and a pair of congress gaiters. The limbs were taken out and placed alongside the body. The remains were then removed by the coroner to Penningtonville. I subsequently examined and made measurements of the grave where the body was buried. The deepest part of it was eleven inches below the surface. At that depth was a large root running across the bottom of the grave. There were other roots running across near the ends of the grave. At the time when Rhodes and I raised the head out from the ground, the face had a natural look. By that I mean I could have recognized it easily if I had known the person in life. I have no doubt of this. Counsel for Commonwealth here proposed to show a photograph picture to the witness, and ask him whether he recognizes either of the persons photographed thereon, to be followed by evidence as to whose photograph it is. Objected to by the defense. The court. The offer, of course, must be considered in connection with the opening that the Commonwealth made, and with the offer of other evidence showing whose photograph it is. We can see without difficulty that it can do no harm if it is not followed by such proof. If it is followed by such proof, the consequences are precisely the same as if the proofs were heard in advance. I do not myself see that it can make any difference to the prisoner, and this question is purely one of discretion with the court. In our judgment, the evidence must be received. Exception reserved by the defense. The photograph spoken of here was handed to witness. It was the same photograph which had been introduced in evidence during the preceding trial of the insurance case, being a picture of Mr. J. W. Langley sitting and Mr. W. S. Goss standing by the chair. Witness testified, This person standing facing me bears a strong resemblance to the face of the person I discovered in Bear's Woods. From the point of the nose upward, in particular, there is a strong resemblance also in the eyebrows and the hair. A linen shirt, very much soiled and somewhat torn, was handed witness. Witness examining. That looks like the shirt found by the side of the body of the man found in the woods. I recognize it by the blood stains, and more particularly by that button, indicating. I noticed that button particularly on the front part of the band. I noticed at the same time that it was a common porcelain button, and that the thread was not white. Also, these cuts in the shirt, one near the band, and these on the right side near the front. I observed all these marks while the jury were holding the inquest, before the body was removed from the woods. End of section 31